everybody to the Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode number 49. I'm Joel and it's we've been somewhat erratic over the last few weeks and months. Uh, the, the, we had a great year with Coaches Rising and then the baby came and it all got away from me a little bit. So next year I'm going to be more regular with the podcast. And I just wanted to actually take a moment right now you know, here we are at the end of the year. I am just feeling into how grateful I am that you have engaged with this podcast. I just want to thank each one of you for listening in. I know some of you will have heard me say this in the programs, but I'm such a believer in the role that coaches can play in these times, you know, in, in helping us to thrive, to, to navigate these times and thrive to become wiser and more compassionate and to to be able to respond creatively in these complex times. And so so it warms my heart to see so many of you engaging with this podcast. And I'm I'm just dedicated, you know, we we're dedicated at Coaches Rising to supporting you and being the best coach that you can be. One of the ways we do that is through this podcast. So thank you. And well, what's coming now? So in this conversation, I'm going to be talking with Steve March. And Steve's become something of a mentor of mine this year. In this conversation, we're going to be talking about how can we respond creatively uh, in the, the kind of face of this background kind of feeling of this mood of fear that we seem to be swimming in. I don't know about you. But, you know, with this constant news cycle these days of, of the crises we face, I, I, it just feels like, you know, there's this kind of background mood of fear. And, and so we're going to talk about today, how can we respond creatively and, 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 and deepen in the face of fear rather than defend? And we'll do that in the context of Steve's Aletheia approach. And I've been applying this approach in my own coaching and I've seen incredible results and one of the things I love is this idea of four depths. So we'll talk about deepening in the face of fear in the context of these four depths. So the depth of parts, uh, you know, something like internal family systems, what parts are coming up in our coaching, the depth of process, this kind of flow, uh, you know, something like focusing works in a very process-oriented way, the depth of presence, um, you know, like in the diamond approach, you talk about these states of Quality, these qualities of presence that can emerge, that, that can empower us, and then this depth of non-duality, and, and that these four depths can emerge in the coaching. And, and if we can recognize them and work with them skillfully, we can accelerate or we can, we can say, enhance the organic unfoldment or growth of our clients. So we're going to explore that and, and some of the fundamentals of Steve's approach. I hope you enjoy it. Again, I just want to ask if you feel inspired to share this podcast. I'd really appreciate that. I want to get the word out to as many coaches as possible. So without you know, any more uh, being said by me, there's been quite a, a lot already. I just want to wish you a, a very, very happy festive period and new year. And let's dive in. Steve. Great to be with you today. How's things? Hi, Joel. Things are really great. Cool. I'm excited to speak with you today. Um, we wanted to title this conversation 
conversation today, deepening in the face of fear. So I'm going to ask you about that in the moment. Um, although I think we're going to be going pretty wide ranging. I, I'm a big fan of your work. As people might know on this podcast, I've mentioned your name a few times and I've been kind of learning with you this year. So I'm excited to be able to, to talk again. Um, and we'll talk about Aletheia coaching because um, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but let's come back to that point, you know, like deepening in the face of fear. Could you just kind of talk us into that? Yeah, yeah. Deepening in the face of fear really is an alternative that I'm working to open up in Aletheia as compared to defending in the, in the face of fear, which I think is our natural response. And I've been reading some European philosophers recently talking about fear. And one of the points that was made that I've been really reflecting on deeply is you know, in many ways, fear is one of the core emotions, one of the primary emotions, and it's uh, adaptive. It's something that when we feel threatened, feeling fear is an appropriate response to that. It activates us in a particular kind of way. But it seems that with all of these crises that we're experiencing in the world, climate change and political instabilities and economic instabilities, and you name it, the list goes on and on. I mean, here where I live in California, the new normal is, is um, wildfires that we have all the time. And we're having to adjust and get uh, to get getting used to that, you know. And so fear ha- is an emotion, but it's also really in these times started to become a mood that we live in. And so somewhere in the background, in a way, we're always afraid. And... Um, Given that, what we, I think we see in the culture, the cultural response, more, you know, broadly speaking, is more and more defensiveness. And the defensiveness is getting more and more extreme. I, I think you know, my classic example of this is just the, the kind of extreme polarization that's happening in American politics or, you know, frankly, uh, worldwide in politics. Um, this seems to be happening. And there's a lot of good research to suggest that when we become afraid, we act in ways that are increasingly extreme and polarizing. And so in Aletheia work, um, you know, the core distinction that we, we work with is development as, uh, as a process of unfolding depth, of, of, of dropping more deeply into ourselves in the present moment in such a way that we find a different response to life, a response to life that issues more directly from our very nature as wholeness. And so um, I'm starting to really work on talking about deepening unfoldment really as a response to this, this atmosphere or this mood of fear that we seem to be living in these days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, cause first of all, I just resonate with that so much. You know, I, I've, I've commented on that recently, just this kind of pervading sense of fear that, that's kind of permeated my life more recently. In fact, I, no, I noticed I read a, a Forbes article uh, the other day, and he, the, the guy was a climate scientist and, um, you know, had been so for like 20 years. And he was like, look, I've got to speak out. I've got to bring a more balanced uh, uh, kind of perspective to this climate conversation because it's become – you know, it's become like um, so kind of um, hyper, you know, like in terms of people are making predictions that humanity will be wiped out within 12 years. 
you know, mm. and, and like, so he was saying that's just simply not true. You know, that if you look at the science, that just doesn't, of course, climate, climate science is very serious. So anyway, like I just noticed reading that article, like, whew, just like something inside of me relaxing. And that, that, that had me notice that, that mood of kind of anxiety or fear that's often in the background, I think. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm appreciating that. And I know that you've, we've spoken about this before and you've often spoken, put it in the context of complexity, you know, that actually unfolding, and we'll talk about more about what that is, but unfolding is a beautiful response to the complexity of the world. So now I'm enjoying that you're talking about it in terms of, um, a response to the, the kind of polarization and fear that we are increasingly finding ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's true for a long time now, I've been looking at the ever, uh, the way the world is becoming ever more complex. And really this is showing us on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, the limits to problem solving. You know, the ways in which when we conceive of the situation we face as a problem, then naturally what we want to do is to solve it. And the solution is to eliminate the problem. And yet there's so much of the world that we face that's challenging that isn't really problematic. It's simply complex. And no matter what we do, no matter how skillfully we respond to that complexity, what we face remains complex. And so it's never a matter of eliminating complexity. And in fact, if we try to eliminate complexity in our lives, and you know, maybe some of that elimination is appropriate, but the vast majority of it, in order to eliminate it, we would have to blind ourselves to life. And that creates uh, a whole host of, of other negative side effects. So finding an alternative to problem solving has been a really big mission of mine really for the last 20 years. And unfolding, I think, is. And it's really leveraging... Um, the, you know, the science of, of complexity and emergence in which what we recognize is that uh, complex systems have emergent properties. And so a lot of the way as a coach that I work with my clients is to help them um, settle into the complexity that they're in the midst of and begin to tap into an emergent phenomena of their own development, their own unfoldment, um, and how that is uh, a way of very skillfully adapting to the complexity that they're in and uh, learning to navigate that more. And one of the things that's really um, the way we feel the complexity these days is through this background of fear. You know, the complexity seems to be um, mounting and accelerating and we're getting more and more fearful in a way. And sometimes that fear is in the foreground where we're actually feeling afraid and sometimes it's more in the background where as i say it's more atmospheric nevertheless that atmosphere really um, has a has a significant emotional impact and emotional burden on us that we can see in the way we respond to anything in life before we talk more about you know working with people in emergence and unfolding i'm just curious because you know in complexity it's like we could see complexity as a bad thing, you know, like, Oh, I don't, we want to make things, you know, in Dave Snowden's work, we want to maybe make things more understandable and complicated. So we know best practice and so on, but you know, well, complexity is just complexity. It's um, you know, it's actually incredibly creative. Like there's an emergent kind of um, nature to complexity, but 
I'm thinking about that in terms of fear, you know, like, could you, could you like say fear as an, as an emotional mood might have the same kind of, um, you know, emergent kind of intelligence to it. Cause I, I think I associate fear in myself as something I, um, you know, even though I, as best as I try to welcome it as an emotion, I still have a tendency to label it as a unwanted, you know, experience. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I, m- many of us do. I know I, I have that part of me as well. The part of me that's actually afraid of feeling afraid. I think many of us, maybe all of us do to some extent. And this is one of the things that keeps us um, um, falling back onto our defensiveness. And, you know, maybe even the first line of defensiveness is the unwillingness to feel the fear that, that's here. And so what if the fear that arises, it's not something bad but is instead an invitation. And what I'm proposing is it's an invitation to deepening. And we have to accept the invitation in a particular kind of way in order to, in order to open up into that. If, and you know, we have to accept that and face that fear consciously would be a simple way of saying that. When we, when we experience our fear from our unconsciousness, from the habitual condition tendencies that we have within us, uh, that get triggered, we tend to react defensively. And when we act defensively, I think if we look around in the world, we can see so many of the, of the, the challenges that we face between ourselves um, uh, are stirred as side effects, often unintended side effects, from acting defensively. And rationally, you know, if we feel threatened, why wouldn't we defend? Why wouldn't we act defensively? So there's a certain idealism in it that's very seductive. And, you know, just as I've been working to find an alternative to problem solving, I'm working to find an alternative to responding to fear, uh, an alternative to defensiveness. And I'm proposing and beginning to explore really deepening and so, you know, you know from um, the work that um, you've been learning for me this past year, we do a lot of work with parts. You know, we do parts work in Aletheia. And discovering a part that's protective, a protector part, um, which is acting in a protective stance or acting defensively, uh, who has a core f- um, emotion of fear, we, we don't demonize those parts for their negative side effects we actually uh, relate to them and love them and value them in such a way that the defensiveness itself begins to shift, begins to relax. And this is the very openness to depth. So there's something, there's a fundamental shift that has to happen, I believe, in how we relate to our own fear um, in the midst of these times that can actually begin to open a new possibility forward into the future other than just continuing to unconsciously allow ourselves to, uh, to get triggered and defensive. Um, I think over the last 20 years, we've really seen increasingly more and more extremeness in our culture as a result of allowing our defenses to, uh, to rule. Maybe this is a good time to talk about, you know, Aletheia coaching and, the four depths that you work with in Aletheia coaching, you mentioned parts work there, but perhaps it's good to, you know, talk about like what, what are some of the core principles of Aletheia coaching 
You know, it's not problem solving. It's something different. It's not defensiveness. It's something different. Um, and then these four depths that you work with. Yeah. Yeah, we've been talking about deepening as an alternative, but what do we mean by depth? Um, so in Aletheia, we work with four different depths. And it's a longer story that I think I may have shared on the first podcast around how I came up with this. But suffice it to say, as a shortcut, there are four that we work with. The shallowest depth is the depth of parts. This is a depth in which when we're living life at this depth, we really see everything as being separate. So I'm sitting here on a chair right now and I'm separate from the chair and I'm separate from the laptop and I'm separate from you and I'm separate from all of these listeners that may be listening to this. And even if I introspect and look inwardly, I recognize that I have body sensations that feel separate from the emotions that I have and feel separate from the thoughts that I have. And I can begin to name a variety of different things that I feel on the inside that also feel separate from each other. Now, very much related, but separate. And so <clears throat> this depth of parts is felt like that. It's felt in, in being populated by things that are objectifiable, identifiable, nameable as separate. The next depth down is the depth of process. The depth of process is the depth of uh, fluid and felt experience. So this is the place where we start to notice uh, bodily felt senses as they flow through us. Um, or we start to notice felt imagery as we experience the, um, the play of images that come through our mind. Um, we can also look at the cosmos around us from the depth of process and recognize as the Buddha did, that everything is impermanent and everything is flowing. You know, so even the chair I'm sitting on is, from the view of process, something that's in flow, in the sense that it hasn't always been this shape and it won't always be this shape in the future. It is something that is this shape right now, but is also um, always in a transition. And in... Aletheia coaching, we have a way of working at the depth of parts, meeting the client at this depth of parts through parts work in such a way that there's a spontaneous dropping deeper into the depth of process. And every time we drop deeper, there is a, a way in which we discover and begin to integrate more of our innate resourcefulness. So there's some amazing properties about the depth of process that are tremendously resourceful. Um, particularly in dealing with complexity. Because it's really at the depth of process that we're able to have direct experience, felt experience of emergence, of our own emergence, of the emergence of relationships, of the emergence of um, group conversations, and a variety of things like that. All of the really great facilitators and coaches that I know in the world um, are all, uh, all have access to this depth of process and actively include their body's felt sense in their understanding of what's happening in a coaching conversation or what's happening in a group that they may be facilitating. So in Aletheia coaching, we also do process work at this depth. And we do that in a way that allows a spontaneous deepening further still into the depth of presence and absence, which is the next depth down. The primary experience of the depth of 
presence and absence, when we drop into it, when we drop into, um, let's say, an experience of ourselves as presence, is that we feel whole and complete. There's a real difference from the depth of parts where when we're identified with an egoic part, there's frequently this background sense of deficiency, of not being enough, of being, um, uh, yeah, just not enough for the world. The world always seems to be asking a little bit more from us. But when we're experiencing ourselves deeply in this depth of presence, we feel whole and complete, and we feel sufficient as opposed to deficient. And part of why that is, is that we drop into an, uh, this depth and recognize that presence itself is a treasure trove of resourcefulness. And there are different qualities of presence. This is one of the big distinctions I learned from one of my teachers, A.H. Uh, Almas, in the Diamond Approach. Um, he brilliantly um, articulates a variety of qualities of presence, you know, um, trust and unconditional love and uh, merging love and joy and value and fulfillment and, um, and strength and courage and compassion and peacefulness and passion and a variety of other things. There's numerous different qualities. And each one is a skillful response in the moment or can be a skillful response in a particular moment. Um, and so there's a, there's a real treasure trove of, um, of, of resources there. Mm. And the last depth that we can drop into, and if we work with, we work with um, presence work at the depth of presence and absence in such a way that we spontaneously drop down into the depth of non-duality. And the depth of non-duality is really very much, the, very much um, contrasted to the depth of parts where everything was separate. Here at the depth of non-duality, everything is not separate. Um, hence the term non-dual. And so, <clears throat> and here as we drop down into the depth of non-duality, we uncover yet another uh, well of deep resource, uh, deep resource of um, the very creativity of life itself. And so um, there's a way in which when we respond to fear by deepening instead of defending, that um, rather than... Um, rather than separating ourselves from the world and creating uh, defensive boundaries from the world, that we actually drop both deeper into ourselves, feel ever more resourced, but also ever more together in this. And I think that's exactly what's needed in these times is to feel ever more together in the midst of the complexity of the world that we live in, as opposed to ever more um, apart and seeing the other side as the real threat, which is a lot of what's happening in, in extremely polarized politics. You know, I mean, it's the, the, my sense, and I'm an, <laughs> I'm an armchair political observer. I'm no, you know, don't have any background in political science whatsoever, but it really appears to me that the politicians in this country have stopped worrying about governing and just simply worried about winning the next election. Um, and, and uh, demonizing the other side to do that. So that's an example of it's sort of defensiveness run amok. We don't feel in this together. We actually feel like the other side is the threat. And that's, um, that's a situation that isn't workable. It's, it's interesting because I just had an example today. I was working with a client. So you, you, this, I, I think I'm, 
excited by it when you talk about this kind of togetherness or collaboration that could emerge. And I, I, my sense is, um, you know, it's like our operating system needs updating as a species. You know, if we if we're only um, you know living in a separate sense of self, which I think is often we're often run by a part. You know, um, a part of us that's oriented around winning or or being right or you know a certain ideology. Well, then, you know, it's like we haven't got, where do we go, like, to actually get over ourselves, you know, over our kind of own limited agenda and then, and then, and then work together, you know? And I'm just thinking that so this client I work with today, you know, um, tr- trust was a quality that arose in that depth of presence, you know? So the person, um, and, it, and basically was reflecting out in their relationship with someone where that was not there, there was a deficiency of trust and then it was creating fear and, um, you know, like um, um, reactivity in some sense. And so as we were with this experience, it unfolded and then trust emerged. And, um, and then the response from that place was beautiful, you know. It's like, wow, like I, I, I trust life. I trust this person. Um, I trust m- myself to respond you know, in the, in the, in the most appropriate way as needed, you know, it was a completely different experience. So, um, yeah, I wanted to share that because, uh, I think it's a great example uh, as you speak about, you know, the capacities that I think we need uh, as individuals and as, as a species, you know, that like, like, like maybe that's a good place to talk about wholeness here. You know, like I think a couple of things that I really want people listening to get you know there's a lot of things but one is like this sense of like letting things be or unfolding you know that um that it's like it's not about problem solving but it's about like allowing being with experience in a way that emergence happens i think that's important for us to unpack but i think this idea of wholeness is crucial you know i think it's an idea whose time is coming although um yeah you know that's just my my opinion but um so much of the time we're we're living from this subtle sense of deficiency and what is it like when somebody lands in that in wholeness like this person today with that trust they felt wholeness and trust and suddenly the world was a radically different place and they had access to radically different capacities so there's a question in there somewhere (laughs) like maybe she could talk about like letting things be unfolding and um and and what wholeness is yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that example. I think it sounds like a, a beautiful unfolding session. And yeah, I mean, you know, just to put a few, um, a few uh, markers into the example that you shared, you know, it sounds like you started with a particular situation with this client that was the client was struggling with a situation where there was a relationship difficulty and there was some lack of trust. And through doing this deep dive of instead of just defending in the, in the face of that, instead of making accusations or blaming or something like that, instead of that actually deepening and unfolding and dropping into a deeper depth of themselves in which they felt um, their own innate wholeness. And as you say, when you drop down in depth, every time you drop from one depth to the next, your entire sense of yourself, of other people, and of the world shifts. And so when you drop down multiple depths into the depth of presence and you really experience yourself feeling whole and complete, um, 
then you circle back to that situation and you say, you know, I would say to a client, so how does this situation we started with feel to you now or occur to you now? And very predictably, the client will say radically different things about the circumstance. They start to see new possibilities for going back into a conversation with the person. Um, um, and this really starts to open up something very different. And this is a great example of exactly what I'm talking about, where instead of, you know, instead of giving in to our defensiveness, um, we find a way to work with our defensiveness to indeed accept and love our defensiveness, but in a certain way that you're pointing to by um, our core principle, letting be. If we, if we relate to our defensiveness in a certain way, we actually open up this deepening dimension, this deepening alternative. So you name letting be. Letting be is the core principle that we work with in Aletheia Coaching. And it on the, it's a very paradoxical principle. Some of you may be um, familiar with the Gestalt principle of the paradox of change. And the paradox of change uh, essentially says that when we approach um, ourselves or some part of ourselves or even, even another person with an agenda to change them, then what we tend to get back is resistance. And that resistance is really born uh, from that part of us or that the other person not really feeling truly seen. And if instead we approach a part of ourselves or another person with no agenda to change them, but an agenda to, if you will, understand them better um, and to appreciate their goodness, um, that what happens is the part of that part of us will feel seen or the other person will feel seen. And, you know, when we feel seen by someone, you know, if you can, you know, just pause and, Remember what it's like to feel seen, maybe by a friend, maybe by a lover, maybe by a, a parent, maybe by a teacher, some mentor, maybe by a coach. When we feel seen, when we feel truly seen, something in us starts to melt. Something in us softens, something in us relaxes. And it's that very relaxation, that uh, energetic discharge, that, um, that melting, that begins to spontaneously drop us from the depth of parts down into the depth of process where things feel more fluid. And it's very common actually that that melting feeling comes with a few tears. You know, when we cry, if we really are attuned to the felt sense of crying, what we'll notice is that we it feels like on the inside we're melting a little bit. We can feel the fluidity of that. And so this is beginning to open up a really different way that takes us somewhere deeper rather than, um, rather than, you know, approaching some defensive part of ourselves with an agenda, uh, an agenda to change it because we can see that it's, it's well-intended, but creating a mess of our life, you know, creating some sort of unintended uh, negative side effects. So it all comes back to letting be. And initially, when people hear about letting be as a principle, what it sounds like to many people is giving up. It's anything but giving up. It's also not tolerating the situation. Um, it's also not dooming yourself to some sort of homeostatic, unchangeable reality, or you're not just sort of shifting into resignation like, 
uh, I'm not going to, nothing new is going to happen here. So none of those things are true. In fact, paradoxically, letting be is, is one of the most potent ways to actually produce change. And the reason why it's potent is because it doesn't evoke resistance to change. It simply, and it further simply allows the natural emergence of the complex systems that we are, the natural unfoldment of the living organisms that we are, to actually take place. And so there's something here in what we're working with in Aletheia that is, you know, development or unfolding, as I like to call it, is, na- is a natural life process. It's something that will happen all on its own, and it will happen spontaneously. But, but oftentimes, we're trying to take over for it. We're trying to be in control. We're defending. We're afraid of where it might go. And so we get in our own way there. So this principle, as we practice it, of letting be, of noticing what's here, feeling it, allowing it, is actually a way of beginning to, to tap into this natural unfolding process and let it unfold, let it happen. I think, you know, a lot of time in coaching or, you know, some kind of um, modality like that, yeah, it's, it's starting off from that, like, oh, I don't feel quite whole in some way, but if I do this coaching, I'll get to that place where I'll feel okay. So it's starting off on that fundamental kind of, you know, um, you could maybe say error, you know, of, of um, um, what it is to unfold, to, to grow and develop. And um, one of the ideas that really struck me, which I think you introduced me to, with Eugene Jenlin's idea of like structure uh, emerging out of process. You know, I think that's a, that's a beautiful um, way to say what you're saying already, you know, like, and I, I think I often try to um, kind of create structure in a way um, or, um, you know, like, it's like there was a sense of like, I know what the structure needs to be and we're going to kind of make it happen, you know, get to that place, like through creating certain conversations and practices in the coaching and it never quite worked. And what I find in this way is that there's a kind of organic um, intelligence that comes through in the work, you know, which is kind of far superior than my mind, you know, like that, that, that wants to be a good coach and control where the client goes. And so as I'm with the client in the moment and it's unfolding, there's this, you know, through, through process, you know, through allow, you know, allowing parts to be there. And we could talk more about parts. I think there's something important to say about that, but allowing process to emerge and, and presence. And then that, that kind of creates that turns into structure that turns into a new way of being for, for the client. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's something that you're, you're pointing to, which I want to take an opportunity to, um, to sort of expand on, you know, I think that if we look at the history of coaching as a profession, You know, originally coaching was, was sort of contrasted to consulting, particularly in the business world where, you know, um, the consultants were seen as advice givers and coaching was seen as, you know, the coach is, is coming with no agenda, is listening, is asking questions, is very receptive. And 
you know, that brought in a whole other dimension to offering support that um, wasn't available in consulting. Of course, um, that's helpful, but, you know, what about actually the, the coach being able to, to say something in the conversation to bring in a distinction or, you know, to recognize that even in asking particular questions, the coach is, is inserting themselves in. And so that there are other methods of coaching that really um, also recognize that the coach can say something, that can, the coach can bring something of themselves in. And there's been this sort of back and forth debate between the two camps in, in the coaching world. Uh, on the one side are, you know, uh, coaches that take a, a far more receptive approach. And on the other side, coaches that take, you know, um, a much more uh, directive approach. Um, and so in Aletheia coaching, really what we're doing is we're allowing this natural unfolding of life itself um, and the intelligence of that, the organic intelligence of that that you're pointing to actually be in some sense the coach um, or, you know, the coaching winds up being an apprenticeship to that. And the coach is apprenticing that um, as much as the coach is inviting the client to apprentice to that, to sense and feel what's spontaneously arising um, and to trust what's arising, to honor what's arising, to, you know, if, if there's an emotion of anger is arising, is it okay to feel angry right now? And if the client says, yeah, I, I do feel angry right now, then there's space given to feel angry. And, and, there, and it's recognized innately as something that's trustable, something that's valuable, something that will go somewhere, something that will reveal something about the client or their situation. And so we follow that just as we would follow bodily felt senses. And so what I actually find as a coach in, in this style of coaching is that, yeah, I can bring myself into this. Um, I'm certainly receptive to what's happening with the, with the client in this, in the situation, but I'm also seeing myself as, um, as integrally part of it. So I'm, at, I'm able to offer suggestions about, you know, what if you allow yourself to feel angry right now, for example. Um, but it isn't the coach's job to develop the client. It isn't the client's job to develop themselves. Development is something that's happening in a far more intelligent way um, through us. And the, the actual practice of unfolding is learning how to apprentice that. So as a coach, I actually find this style of coaching very simple, very easy to do. Um, uh, because the center of it is just relating. I'm relating to the client. I'm relating to what's arising in me, uh, in the client, between us, in real time, in the moment, in such a way that we spontaneously deepen. And when we deepen, we discover resourcefulness and creativity that we can then own and integrate and embody and bring into the situations that are most challenging. And opening that whole possibility is, um, it, it's life-giving. And I find myself at the end of a coaching conversation feeling energized as opposed to uh, worn out by trying to get the client somewhere that they're, they're not. Um, I'd like to ask you about, there's something I've been thinking about, which relates to what we're talking about, identifying and disidentifying. Um, so you said like embody, you know, embodying, just mentioned there. And I think it's a really interesting, this has kind of accelerated my process, I think. Like, um, you know, that 
at the depth of parts, you know, like we wanting, we're wanting to actually disidentify from a part which may be running us. And maybe it's a good point to mention internal family systems. Um, but actually we're disidentifying from a part that's running us. And that allows us to then relate to that part in a way that we can let it be. But fascinatingly, at the depth of, you know, process and, and presence, particularly, it's like we want to identify with the, with the quality that emerges to be that, you know. So um, perhaps you could say something about that, because I think it's, it, for me, it's a really powerful distinction in, in you know, um, in our evolution as, as in waking up as people. Yeah. Yeah. You're bringing in quite a lot here. Um, so really there, there's sort of three gestures that, um, make up the Aletheia method. The first is, uh, inquiring, which is really about being curious about what's true right now. You know, so if we were to start a conversation, I might say, Joel, tell me what's happening right now. What are you aware of? Or you might be talking about a situation that you're struggling with. And then I might say, when you finished telling me about the situation, um, I might ask you, so what's it like right now to share this with me? You know, let's actually get into the present moment. You know, and you might say, I feel vulnerable, or I feel really excited to share this with you, or who knows what you would feel. But the point is to begin to access that. That's the nature of inquiry. The second gesture is unfolding and so that there's something once we access something that's true here and we stay with it what we notice is without any efforts on our own part to change it it will change on its own and that's the experience of emergence something emerges then the third step the third gesture is enacting which is that we can then take action on the basis of what has unfolded we can step in with that. We can respond to that. Um, and these three gestures operate in different ways at each depth. And that's part of the method as, as um, I teach it. So what you're pointing to here at the depth of parts is that is one of the central features of this is that we identify a part as a part. And we disidentify from it and land into presence relating to the part as a part. That's the second gesture. And then the third gesture, how we do in action in, at the depth of parts is we love and value that part. Mm. So because the depth of parts is the hallmark of this, as I said before, is separation, we can do this. And then, in fact, skillfully navigating the depth of parts requires this. It requires that we identify the things that are separate, that we disidentify from them, and that we bring presence into the mix. Presence is the catalyst for all unfolding. And so when we're able to be presence with a part, um, we're able to be with the part exactly the way it is with no need to change it, no agenda to change it, even though that part, maybe like an inner critic part, for example, is trying to protect us, but also has some unintended negative side effects, which is you know, we feel terrible because we're always feeling criticized by this part. So it's true that at the depth of parts, we disidentify from them so that we can relate to them, uh, love them and value them. 
And when those parts, when our parts really feel loved and valued for being who they are, what they are, for having their good intentions to protect us and save us, then what begins to happen is they melt, as I mentioned before. They melt in that field of love. And in fact, this is one of the places we discover that love melts boundaries. And so as the boundaries of the parts begin to melt, as the structure begins to turn uh, back into its basis, which is process, which is fluidity, um, we drop spontaneously into the depth of process. And, you know, from here down into the depth of, of presence, you're right that there's almost a, a bit of a turn where instead of disidentifying from what's arising, we're kind of moving inch by inch more towards realizing that we are what's arising. And so what I would say is when we drop down into the depth of presence and let's say what's arising is we start to really feel compassion, for example. We don't want to then identify with compassion um, because identification is really, it's an operation, it's a function at the depth of parts. Um, it's, it's a structural move that we make there that um, that's, is based upon separation, uh, objectification, and identification. Here what we want to recognize is that as we, as we feel the arising of compassion, that we know it because we feel it as the feeling of us. We feel that we are compassion, not that we are compassionate. I suppose you could say that. That's the usual way we'd, we would speak. But the actual um, feeling of it is of being compassion. So that we can actually experience, it's like we experience ourselves being made of the substance of compassion, the subtle substance of compassion. And we might feel a kind of um, exquisite tenderness just sort of um, permeate, uh, starting from oftentimes somewhere around our heart, and it just begins to permeate, and it has a very kind of cooling effect. And in the face of suffering, um, that, that cool tenderness that oftentimes has um, tones of clarity in it um, is, is actually a beautiful response and a very appropriate response to the suffering. It allows us to be with suffering, which is the definition of compassion. So, you know, the reason why we have to disidentify from parts is that firstly, we're identified with them. And so, you know, rather than saying a part of me is angry, I would say I'm angry. I'm sad, I'm ambitious. And, you know, the narcissism of our culture really tends to have us in that view. I'm this, I'm that. But those identifications actually prevent us from dropping deeper into ourselves. So the first move when we begin to notice these identifications is to, dis is to say that's a part of me, to disidentify from it, to work with it in such a manner let it be exactly as it is, love it, value it exactly as it is, that it feels seen, melts, and allows us to drop into uh, deeper depths of ourselves where we can begin to have a different experience of ourselves, ultimately leading to a, an experience of wholeness and completeness mm. at the depth of presence. So, um, yeah, it's really... It's an, it's an interesting dance that we do here with ourselves that allows us to skillfully work with what's here 
and never with a change agenda, always with following the principle of letting be, letting unfold. And yet when we do that, there's a way in which we drop into these deeply resourced states that are a skillful and appropriate response to the exact circumstance that we're experiencing and struggling with. Yeah. Yeah, I found that to be remarkable. You know, even people who haven't had much experience with something like uh, meditation or, you know, embodiment practices that have coached, you know, dropping into that sense of wholeness and, 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 you know, the profound impact that that has on them, you know, and that sticks. It's like, wow. Like for some people, it's been even like, oh my God, this is what I was looking for, you know? This is the experience I was looking for. I just didn't know it, you know? And so there's something about the intelligence of the, you know, that thread that, um, you know, a part might represent or this sense of deficiency, you know, that, that, that there's something intelligent in that if we're able to, to let it be and not to try to, to, you know, kind of conquer it or, or kind of problem solve it, but let it be in a way that it unfolds. And, you know, I, like I'm not, I've not fully formed this thought, so it's just coming out. Um, and I know you said like not to privilege one of any of the depths, you know, and that in this, they're all, we just work with the depth that emerges. And yet there's something for me about this depth of wholeness, you know, that, um, that seems so like requisite for the, the times we find ourselves in where it feels like in some ways we've reached the, the kind of, um, the limits of this kind of our analytical minds, you know, that have kind of um, separated out of experience and, and, and um, it's brought so many wonderful gifts too, you know, like the, the kind of um, the way we've analyzed and, and um, you know, kind of objectified the world into parts. Um, I don't want to denigrate that, but it's like we've lost something in that process. And this there's something about me in wholeness where we, where we like, become we become the quality and in doing that we're like um well first of all there's like a transmission of that quality you know an embodiment of it and a transmission but there's something about being um, the intelligence that, that 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 arises as we as we kind of become whole with um the wholeness and this is where my thinking is like i've got to the end of my thinking but we we are whole but we're we're within a bigger whole and we're certainly not separate you know like the analytical mind we're inside of it and that way of responding right now seems so appropriate yeah 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 absolutely i mean what one of the the things that's really difficult to initially to grasp about wholeness is that it operates um holographically um and Essentially, all that means is that um, the whole is expressed in every part. I'll say that again because it's a bit of a mind bender. The whole is expressed in every part. Now, that's not normally the way we think about wholeness. The way we normally think about wholeness, which is at the depth of parts, is that we add the parts together and that equals the whole. You know, so you know, look around your room and anything mechanical, you could take it apart into its, into its parts. But if you picked up a screw, you know, I'm sitting here, there's a laptop, uh, an old laptop sitting next to me that I'm uh, trying to resuscitate. And uh, it has a screw on the bottom of it that keeps falling out. 
<laughs> but if I picked up that little screw, it's clearly not the laptop. There's no doubt about that, right? So that's, I mean, that's the way things operate mechanically, but that's not the nature of, of, of us as living organisms or living uh, qualities of being. And that when we drop into an experience of ourselves um, as living being, uh, beingness itself, you know, what we recognize when we may experience ourselves as compassion, as I was saying earlier, um, uh, that compassion is, feels whole and complete. We feel whole and complete in the moment of realizing ourselves as compassion. We don't feel suddenly like we're lacking courage, even though courage is another quality. We feel courage arising as us. We feel whole and complete in that moment, and we don't feel ourselves lacking compassion. So, the, uh, and in, in essence, the, the reason for this, how this functions, is that all qualities exist within all qualities. This is what it is to, um, to, to um, the, the, whole, the sort of the hologram of this, um, of, of wholeness. So, you know, when we drop into ourselves at depth, this is why we feel so, so profoundly resourced. Now, we feel resourced in our beingness. That doesn't mean that suddenly we know how to fix cars if we didn't know how to fix cars before. Or suddenly we know how to, you know, um, program a, you know, a computer if we didn't know how to program a computer before. Now, clearly, these are different domains of learning. You know, we can learn skills. We can learn about things. Um, uh, and that's, of course, still valuable, tremendously valuable in our society. But what we're talking about here is another dimension altogether. It's it's recognizing that who we are is fundamentally a resource, is fundamentally creativity, is fundamentally life itself. And we're learning to tap into the innate intelligence uh, of that um, as it's arising within us, um, as a way of handling the life we're, we're living. And when we start to do this, there are gigantic shifts begin to emerge, like this background of deficiency that we might feel um, prior to getting to this depth, uh, which I think all of us feel. I know I certainly have felt that for a long time in my life, this background of just not being enough. Um, looking out into the world, we can see a world that's a, a world of scarcity, for example, where, um, where if we see a world of scarce resources, well, it makes a lot of sense to go and make sure that we've got enough for ourselves. You know, whether we're acting individually or whether we're acting as a community or a nation, um, and this again is giving into that to back to the start of our conversation, giving into that fear defensively. When we drop into this depth and we recognize the abundance of being, that that there is a way in which uh, a lot of that begins to shift. New possibilities open up, new possibilities for relating, new possibilities for being in this together open up, and that I think is really what's sorely needed in these well, times. Yeah, yeah. I mean uh, that that grabs me in the terms of, um, I know this is something you helped me clarify in my work because I was always like, like sort of grappling with this sense of, um, you know, like, oh, I'm, you know, talking to my clients about visioning, you know, they've got a vision for some life they want. And yet, you know, that vision is only really a kind of set of imaginings um, about a future. And all we have is this moment right now, um, a, a very potent set of imaginings, you know, um, and so um, this idea, what I like, and I think it fits with what you're saying, is that instead of like focusing on a, a vision of the future, 
in the future that we we focus on unfolding the future in the present you know and then i think that's just another way another frame with which to talk about what we're talking but i think it's a very potent idea once you start to get a handle on that it's like what what is the thing that's calling you forth or that you know that, that you want and then um what comes up as you as you imagine that as you vision that you know maybe some parts get um, brought up a sense of deficiency comes up maybe not maybe there's a sense of you know strength or courage or you know and but the the, the idea thing that you can unfold and and be that future now you know in a sense like embody that future now yeah you know when when we work with clients and clients say th- things like <clears throat> i'm coming to you because i really need help getting a promotion and that's a real concern for people you know they want to advance their career they want to earn more money and you know it's a, it's a sort of obvious request and one would be tempted to say well tell me what do you think is in the way and let's get let's get busy on that project and in a way we can do that in alethea as well um but as developmentally oriented coaches, often we ask what at first seems like a silly question, which is, you know, uh, tell me more for the sake of what do you want to get a promotion? And the person might say something like, you know, um, to earn more money. Okay, that's great. And then we ask a silly question again. Well, tell me more for the sake of what? Why do you want to earn more money? And, you know, fast forward after we ask this question for the sake of what, maybe three, four, or five times, we start getting somewhere with it. We start getting to what is this really about? And often what we get to is something like, I really want to feel valued. I really want to feel loved. Um, I really want to be at peace. I want to rest. You know, what we, what we get to is that ultimately the client is trying to, um, is, this is a big strategy for the client to deal with this sense of deficiency that they feel in their beingness, and they're trying to address that sense of deficiency in their beingness by taking outward external action in the world to do something, to create something in the world out of a hope that once that is created in the world, that somehow that will address the, the, this sort of inner feeling of deficiency. And of course, we all do this, and we've all tried to do this, and um, it kind of sort of pays off, just like um, gambling does once in a while, um, so that we're so convinced that the strategy is a good one. And yet, if we really stand back and look at it, this strategy fails pretty miserably because we keep trying to do it. We, we, we have that moment of rest, that moment of peacefulness, but then it only lasts a day or a week or 10 minutes, whatever it is. And then we realize, ah, this wasn't the thing that would actually allow me to rest. It must be something else. So when we can begin to recognize that really what we're trying to do is address this feeling of inner, inner deficiency, and we can work on that directly as opposed to the ineffective and indirect way that we try to, to work with that externally to us. Um, it's possible sometimes even in a single coaching session to drop into depth, to drop into our innate wholeness, and to feel qualities of sufficiency that are experienced tangibly in our bodies right here in, in such a way that we, when we then go back and look at, so, you know, what does this situation of getting a promotion feel like to you now? 
um, it is completely changed. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't still want to get a promotion. Um, in some instances, it does. In some instances, you see, oh, my gosh, that, there's this huge thing, and it may not work out. But what if I live from here? So um, <clears throat> it just starts to open up different possibilities of how we can, how we can um, uh, unfold a life rather than the possibilities that seem to be offered to us by our culture. And getting a promotion is sort of one of those options that's offered to us by our culture. Get a job, get promoted. So, you know, unfolding really is about opening up a different possibility for dealing with what's really at the core of our life. Um, And further, of not trying to be so much in control of that, but actually trusting the innate intelligence of unfoldment itself, um, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, got us here in the first place. So... um, there really is, you know, it's a different paradigm other than problem solving our lives. Um, not to say that there aren't problems to solve because there can be, I mean, you know, if my car breaks down, that's a problem to solve and I can take it to the mechanic and get it solved. I can't do it myself, but I can get that solved. There are problems, but there are lots of things that aren't problems. They're just complex facets of life. Like human relationship is a good example. Um, so we're really working to open up a different possibility of living here. And it turns out to be a possibility ultimately that's far, uh, far more uh, easeful and effortless, um, far more life-affirming, um, far more adventurous, frankly. Um, and and that, that, all of that is exciting. Mm. So... Um, th- I think this is a good place to to ask you about, um, you know, where can we find out more about your work? Um, there's so many things we could, I wanted to talk to you about the seven phases model you've got. I wanted to talk to you about um, the Enneagram. I think you've got some amazing things to say about that. And I'm, go- I'm probably going to have to start doing Joe Rogan type, um, you know, two and a half hour podcasts. So um <laughs> Can't, we'll have to do those in another conversation, but can, where can we find out more about your work and, and where can we, you know, what's coming up? Yeah, thanks for asking. So, um, so I have a website, www.integralunfoldment.com. There you can see um, the programs that I offer. Um, I offer um, three levels of coach training. It's a real um, multi-year course in coaching mastery. And um, I'm uh, just, as of two weeks ago, open enrollment for our level one program in 2020. And so enrollment is open. Um, It's a virtual program, the level one program is, so it's possible to attend from anywhere in the world. And uh, last year we had 43 students, 20 from Asia, 20 from around the United States, and I think you and several more were uh, from from Europe. So um, I enjoy that it's a global program and... I offer it in two different, um, two different time zones uh, to account for uh, uh, that span of time zones. So, um, so enrollment is open, and if people are interested, they can uh, either check out the website or contact me uh, directly from the website. Thanks. I, I can highly recommend it to people listening. And I just want to stress people from Europe, I can highly recommend it to you. So I might, see my secret mission is to get more people from Europe doing your training. So then, then we can get you over here in person doing some trainings as well. So uh, if you're in Europe, you know, uh, you're like getting a bit curious right now, I highly recommend it. So 
Um, yeah, Steve, I just want to say a big thanks. Um, yeah, I, uh, a lot we could talk about so much more. So we will do at some point next year, for sure. Well, thank you, Joe. I, I always appreciate our conversations. Hello, everybody. You made it to the side of the podcast. Let me, what do I want to say here? It's a precious moment. Um, well, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Again, I want to wish you a wonderful um, festive period at the end of 2019. I've got a great feeling about 2020. I, I often are very skeptical when I hear people saying that, but for some reason, I've got that feeling about next year. I think it's going to be a big year. So um, be well. If you feel inspired to share this podcast, I'd really appreciate that. Always love hearing from you about new guests you'd like on the podcast or podcasts you've enjoyed. And that's all I want to say. All right. Be well and see you next time.